for the week of April 30th, 2023, WGA Strike Eve. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 616, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Dyersville, Iowa, I'm Michael Giltz. Now, why are you in Iowa? Are, is that where the strike is taking place? <laughs> no, it's not. But Iowa is where if you're very quiet and you stand in the middle of a field, you can hear the words, if you build it, they will come. That will, okay. play, in, that will play in later into the show. Just wait for it. Um, but it's been a busy two weeks. We've got a lot to catch up on. You are lounging about at CinemaCon. And comedian Richard Lewis, we talk about people when they die, uh, but we don't talk about them enough when they're alive. And comedian Richard Lewis made a serious announcement. He is living with Parkinson's disease and he is retiring from stand-up. He's going to keep acting and writing. In fact, he wound up the most recent season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, so that's, that's pretty cool. That's great to see. And it's the 100th birthday of a director, mostly for TV, Ralph Sineski. Sineski. Apart, sorry, Ralph. He's from Mason City, Iowa. There you go. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Ralph Sineski has directed, he's 100, he's directed, how many? He's got at least 76 what credits. He's okay. a TV director. He's 100 years old today. He has directed everything from the Waltons to Star Trek to Heart to Heart to that uh, Casablanca attempt that they did with uh, what's-his-name from Starsky and Hutch, Lou Grant, you name it. From live television in the early days, James at 16, a show I really liked, Family. He's got credits all over the place from the f- live television era right up to 2013. And it's cool to celebrate people when they're alive. So happy birthday, Ralph. I know he's a big listener of the show. When did you become Willard Scott? Well, I have put on a little weight, and I do like the weather. I, I am a very <laughs> older you get, the more you're excited by the weather. I would like to say one more thing. I want to eliminate two phrases from our podcast and the world in general: fan service and world building. I I teased you for saying, "Ah, oh, that movie had a lot of fan service." I'm like, "Oh God!" Uh, the other thing is world building. Every oh, the world building is great. The world building is great. It makes sense in a fantasy novel where you're literally creating the world. I now hear the phrase written about a contemporary romance novel. Like, oh, the world building. I'm like, no, actually, the world already exists. It's called our world. They didn't really build it. It's just our world. The cell phones, who would have thought of that? It's out of control. It's just lazy. It's dumb. Don't do it. Of course, we will do it because it's impossible not to use the phrases even if you don't want to, but well, I don't know. I have to say, if we didn't use it, it would be unprecedented for us not to use That's the, uh, We love cliches. We love cliches. Yeah, Tell exactly. me, you were at CinemaCon. Did you have a great time? Are you exhausted? I am exhausted, which is why I'm talking so slowly. Because, ah. Yeah. Do I, I sound a little hoarse? I always talk fast, so nobody would ever know if I was tired. Uh, no, you don't sound like a horse, okay. of course, of course, of course. No, not at all. But if you can, tell us what we're going to talk about this week, Wilbur. Uh, well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are catching up on lots of news since I was lollygagging at CinemaCon. Wait, hey, I was working, working with a capital W at CinemaCon. I really need to read these notes before we start recording. You know, anyway, mm. we will discuss that gathering of exhibitors, movie theater owners, the news that broke during that confab, the cool trailers and footage I saw and more. Of course, the WGA strike is looming, though you know strike, more about strike, that than we do strike, because strike. we're recording on Monday before the deadline. 
So it, it you know, as of 1159 uh, PM, that was the question, by the way, that I was asked the most during CinemaCon. Do you think there's going to be a writer's strike? Yes. I think there's going to be a writer's strike. <laughs> Did, were people depressed when you said that? You're like, yes. <laughs> they were like, yeah, really? They were like, like, you oh, seem yeah. so confident about that. I'm like, yeah, there will be a strike. If, because- they, if they took voting on it and betting on it in the UK, you would lay your money down. Yes, because you know what? Everybody wants this strike. The writers want it. The studios want it. The producers want it. Everybody wants it for various reasons. Why did the studios want it? They get to, after 90 days, they get to rewrite all their contracts. So that's yeah. pretty much what's, what's happening here. Yeah. Uh, on, now, as a matter of fact, we're not going to be talking about that on Inside Baseball. We'll be discussing all of those firings. Jeff Schell at Universal, Don Lemon at CNN, and Tucker Carlson at Fox News. Michael insists what? he knows for oh. a fact the real reason Tucker was fired. Stay tuned. And tell us if you think he's right. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. And we're looking at box office around the world. We have a link to Comscore in our show notes, even though they have still not updated their worldwide box office on their website. So what's going on there? Usually it's done by Sunday afternoon. It's now Monday at 2.35 p.m. Eastern time, and it's still not updated. I'm not, I'm not sure what's going on there. It's, it's a bummer because I really count on them, and they do a great job. Um, but the emails that you get from them had some great info about the China box office even before I found that stuff elsewhere. So Comscore does a great job, but there's some flying the ointment in the last few weeks that keeps them from updating their website by Sunday afternoon. We depend on it, Comscore. Uh, Get, get, get back on top. But if you look at the box office around the world and we pull info from the trades and from Comscore, from uh, Wikipedia, frankly, they do a great job of whoever, all those, all those lovable freelancers, people who do it for free, posting stuff, that gets updated really quickly. And the Mamma Mia, the number one movie around the world is the Super Mario Brothers movie, $151 million worldwide. It's past $1 billion, $1 billion, $23 million worldwide. It passed the $900 million mark on Wednesday from the box office of Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. It went from $800 to $900 million. That's why... We talk about the worldwide box office, and that's why we talk about the full week's box office. Why ignore four days of the week? Sperling, I have to imagine that the Super Mario Brothers movie put a smile on everybody's face at CinemaCon. Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. I mean, you look at that, and then you look at the, the opening of all these films. They're actually opening quite well, and the attendance is doing you know, I know everybody says, oh, attendance is down. Attendance is, yeah, it's down slightly, but it's also the first year after a pandemic. So, you know what? Give it time. It's, it's down slightly uh, compared to 2022 or compared to 2019. 20, the, the average, the running average of 2017 to so 2017, 18, and 19, those three years, if you look at the, the attendance, yes, you're, you're saying, yes, well, box office is up. Yeah, well, you raise the price $3. Of course it's up. But <laughs> at the same time, you look at, you know, the attendance at Avatar. You look at the attendance at Mario Brothers. You look at the attendance of some of these movies that are opening, even ones that aren't big blockbusters. And you go, man, actually, Susan May, you know what? People are going to see that movie. Sisu, we're going to be talking about that soon. 
If, if one more person tells me they love this movie, I'm going to, I will go see it. Stop telling me it's a great movie. I will go <laughs> see this movie. I don't have it on the list because it's sort of one of those under the million dollar mark for a few weeks in a row as it builds up its money. So look up its total box office right now and we'll make sure to mention it. The number one movie around the world is, of course, the video game turned animated film, the Super Mario Brothers movie. At number two is Top Gun China. I'm sorry, no, it's called Born to Fly, a Chinese film about super fighters who try out all the top secret jets that they have in China. It opened up to $41 million, and it leads the way in the Chinese box office where it was May Day weekend, and about 11 to 17 movies are opening up over this one-week period. So a lot of movies open up. They are kind of really cannibalizing each other. Uh, there are two or three that are look like solid hits, but there's another 10 that are not doing that well because there's so many movies opening at once. Looking at China, we have Born to Fly at $41 million. Godspeed, a sort of road trip family comedy that made $32 million. I think the Chinese critics are comparing it to Meet the Parents. It's about a, a father and a daughter, I think, uh, or maybe mother-daughter. Uh, other Chinese movies include So Many Years, a Chinese romance about second chances. A young woman realizes that really hot guy that she turned down. Maybe she should uh, have thought twice about that. That opened to $19 million. And scrolling down for the other Chinese movies, there's another one or two. Uh, oh, The Procurator. This is a Chinese film about lawyers. Another Chinese film about lawyers as heroes. Uh, that made $4 million. So you can already see we've dropped way down. Flashover, $3 million. Racing 72H, $2 million. Yesterday Once More, $2 million. Uh, and the Jackie Chan movie, Ride On, is still making some money. That just broke the $30 million mark. So you can see how quickly we went from 40 to 30 to 19, right down to 2 million, 1 million, and nothing. So, because there's a, at least 11 movies that have opened up. And so, half of them are not scoring more than a million dollars, at least as far as we can tell. So, the Chinese box office is doing well. People are turning out for the movies. The big chance for. Guardians of the Galaxy 3 to score as a big Hollywood movie? Are Chinese people simply refusing to see Hollywood movies right now? I don't think so. And I think they were able to promote Guardians of the Galaxy. They had enough time. So we'll have to see how that does next week. But too many movies opening all at once. You got a billion people. But remember, there's more in India. Anyway. Well, you know what? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, wait until we start talking about CinemaCon and all the... Uh all the, the releases there. And by the way, Sisu, you said it didn't make over a million dollars. It made 3.2 in the U.S. this weekend. And it's made uh, 2.198 uh, internationally, but that was over a, a longer period of time. Well, you know, um, that's, that's one of the problems when uh, Comscore drops the ball. I, mi I missed it totally. Um, so Sisu is at number 10, $3.2 million. I missed covering that up. I captured the George Foreman film and I missed Sisu. I think I was just confused as to what the hell it was. Oh, it's, uh, it's a, well, Lionsgate's releasing it. It's a, it's, uh, set during World War II, uh, you know, uh, about a guy who's, it's basically a genre action film. It's not English uh, language though, is it? Yes, it is. Oh, it is. I thought it was yes. like some other, it's like a guy fighting the Nazis. And he, yes. wants, he wants to protect his gold or something? The, well, the Nazis steal his gold, and he's like, I'm not going to have that. And he goes after him. And, and where, like, where is this happening? In uh, Austria? or In I mean, northern Finland. You know, he like buries and, the gold in and, northern and Finland. And he's speaking in English. 
Yes. Way to go, Hollywood. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Super Mario Brothers made $150 million. In China, Born to Fly made $40 million. Godspeed made $32 million. And then we have John Wick Chapter 4. Not making as much money as I thought, but still bringing in the bucks. $27 million worldwide. It's now past the $400 million mark. It is the biggest wick of them all. The first Slam Dunk, the Japanese animated film, that's turning, making lots of money, mostly in China right now. That made $22 million this week. It's at $233 million worldwide uh, here in North- and, and you know what? It did incredibly well in Korea, and I have oh, got yeah. to see this movie, and I can't find out if it's been released in the U.S. How to see- Yeah, it's, Somebody- it's, been in, it's been in the U.S., yeah. Oh, man. I How am I going to see this movie? And I got to see Suzume. I've got to see Sisu. All these movies that people are like, oh, you've got to see this. It's really good. Well, well, Suzume is, is of course, uh, in It's still theaters. playing. I can see that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that one you can see. Um, is it the first slam dunk or the last slam dunk? The first sam- slam dunk. We've been talking about it for a while now. Yeah. It opened in Japan, uh, December 3rd, 2022. Uh, and it's done incredibly well. Why is this not, isn't that interesting? It's not appearing on Just Watch. I thought it would because I was wondering if it had opened in, uh, you know, online yet here in North America. Nope. Well, we're, yeah, we're making the sausage while you listen, folks. Isn't that exciting? Evil Dead Rise is playing around the world. That reboot of the franchise made another $22 million. It's at $62 million worldwide. We think it cost about $20 million to make. That sounds reasonable. So this is an out-and-out box office hit. Uh, Dungeons & Dragons is not. It cost about $150 million to make. It got good reviews, good word of mouth, but it's only about to hit $200 million. It's at $16 million this week. It's just under $200 million. It's still got some room to grow, but it's obviously not going to get to $450 million. But that's not the end for a movie. When we talk about movies tripling the budget, or at least our best guess, that just means they're a big hit right out of the box before all the other chances to make money. Something like Dungeons and Dragons, it's a known property, some big names in it like Chris Pine. It's it got good reviews and good word of mouth. That means it's going to be very successful online as a streamer, as a rental, as a sell-through title. So uh, ultimately, this movie may do okay. You know, it, it, sh- it shouldn't lose them a lot of money. And it's, it's, not, a bad, uh, it's not a bad gamble. They, they did a pretty good job. But it's not going to get $450 million, and it's probably not going to get a sequel. In- and by the way, I just have uh, some breaking news here. Okay, mm-hmm. breaking news. The first slam dunk from Japanese animation studio Toei Animation. Uh, they are they just sold the rights uh, to the North America here to G Kids, and they will be releasing the film this summer. Oh, that's right. That's I had a press release about that. Shame on me. I knew. Well, it was, wait, can you forward that to me because I, I need to. I will. Uh, yeah, G Kids yeah, does a, a lot of good releasing of international animated movies, so I will forward that to you. And uh, in. India, we have the Hindi film uh, Kisiga by Kisi John, which is someone's brother, someone's lover. It's a remake of a Tamil film. It made about $10 million this week and it's at $20 million and counting. There's that Japanese animated film Suzume, which Sperling promises he will go see. It's by the director of Your Name and Weathering With You. That made another $8 million this week and it passed the $300 million mark worldwide. What I don't know is how much it costs to make. If you do, tell us. Yes, you could write to us. The number to write, the email to write is dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 
888-888-7263. We're also on Twitter. We're at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle, or we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. All right, moving back to the charts. Renfield from your former boss, Nicolas Cage, made another $8 million. Not doing so well. It's at $22 million worldwide. Air, is this film a success? It's going to be on Amazon any minute now. It's grossed about $75 million worldwide. Friendly reviews, I would say. Friendly. But it costs, well, I don't know what it costs, but they, they paid a certain amount of money for it. And maybe $90 million is the reported budget. I don't know how that works with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck involved. But it's made $75 million worldwide, and it's going to come to Amazon. Uh, friendly reviews. So will that work for everybody involved? I don't know. They'll all keep making more movies, that's for sure. Back to India, we have another big film. It's a part two. It's a Tamil historic epic called Ponyan Selvan Part 2. It opened to about $7 million. And here in North America, the very similar movie, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, about a teen girl and her menstrual cycle. That opened to about $7 million. Now, I joke about that, but the dominant audience for this movie is older women, especially older white women. Uh, Men are not rushing to this movie, but it's about a teen coming of age. It's not about menstrual cycles, for God's sake. It's about a young woman wrestling with her faith, trying to get along with her family, but it's a period film. It's set in the 70s, so despite very friendly reviews and very good word of mouth, and of course a documentary about author Judy Bloom, who wrote the novel it's based on, and her enthusiastically endorsing the movie. People were hoping it would do a titch better than this, but it should have good legs, and hopefully people will discover the movie because it's a great book, and she says the movie is even better. How many authors say that? Not many. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. Um, Our our in-house film critic, Aaron Rich, says that Guy Ritchie's The Covenant, a war film starring Jake Gyllenhaal, he says it's really fun. It's like a spaghetti western. It made $5 million this week. It's at $12 million and counting. He says it's the best movie Guy Ritchie has ever made. Take that as you will. Return of the Jedi is back in the theaters, the Star Wars movie. I almost went to see it. If it had been the original cut, I probably would have. I'd prefer to see all three, like in three weeks in a row or something. But I know it's the the anniversary of the third movie, and it made $5 million this week. It's at $480 million worldwide. Think about that. Boy, that's a long time ago, isn't it? When a movie as big and anticipated as Revenge, Return of the Jedi, which could be a huge success, made $480 million worldwide. These days, we'd say, oh, well, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, then we've got a few other movies. Tokyo Revengers 2, Bloody Halloween Destiny. This is part one of a two-part animated movie epic. It made $5 million. This week, it's at $9 million and counting. Maybe it'll pick up once part two opens. And big George Foreman, a fictional film about George Foreman, who was a boxer, who then retired, became a preacher, and then God called him, and he went back into the ring and became the oldest heavyweight champion of all time. That opened up to a modest $3 million uh, for a movie that cost about $32 million to make. Um, Oh, and Night of the Zodiac. This is an English-language action film starring the son of Sonny Chiba, a legendary Japanese martial arts actor. Uh, His name is... Uh, Mackinu. I, I, I meant to look up online how to pronounce his name. I apologize. But what I love was the translation of his name. Essentially, it means true sword savior. Man, you know your dad is an action hero when you, when you are his son and your name is True Sword Savior. <laughs> so he was destined to at least save the world or become a movie star. Um, kind of opened modestly at $2 million. And Bo is Afraid, the Ari Aster film that's chugging along, that made about $6 million total. And of course, 
Uh, Sisu, is that how you say it? Sisu, yes. Sisu, that made $3 million this week worldwide. And uh, a British action comedy, I thought no, it would No, it open- made $3 million just in the United States. In the United States. How much has it made worldwide? I'm trying to f- find that out. Uh, well, that shouldn't take more than a second. Sisu has made worldwide... million. It basically has opened up here in North America only. And there's also the British action comedy, Polite Society, which looks like fun. It opened to $1.2 million, so not a huge opening for that movie. But it looked fun and looked like it got some good reviews. It's on 900 screens, which I guess counts as a modest opening. Uh, But about 800,000 here in North America and 400,000 worldwide. Presumably a lot of that in the UK since it is a British film. Uh, But I'm looking forward to checking that out. You got a cool kid? Take her to see Are You There, Goddess, Me, Margaret, and Polite Society. And if you've got an even cooler son, take him as well. Well, and I'm looking here. It looks like uh, the international box office... uh uh, I don't know how much it made this this week, but to- in total, it's made five point four million dollars total. There you go. Caesar. That's Caesar. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah. Well, it was China May Day uh, over the weekend, so that's why so many movies come out in China. One movie that's off the charts now is the Spanish animated film Mummies. We talked about it when it was on the charts, and there was a story about it. I think it was mm, was a deadline. Whoops, I forgot who, who did it. They've been doing good stories about international films that are hits, even if they haven't quite risen in consciousness here in North America. Something we've been doing all along, but great to see other people giving more focus to hits all over the world. It has now made about $50 million worldwide. It cost about $12 million to make, which is awfully inexpensive for an animated movie. Um, in fact, it's the highest grossing animated film from Spain because there is an English language movie starring the voices of Dwayne Johnson and others. That grossed $106 million worldwide, but guess what? That cost $70 million to make, so not so much a hit, whereas Mummies has more than quadrupled its, its reported budget. So that is a big hit. Sequel being discussed, I should imagine. And this week, another big news, India's population has just past China's 1.4 billion people. When will its box office catch up? When will they embrace films from around the world as much as they do their own very healthy, admirable film industry? Uh, we love to see all the movies in the different regions of India doing well in that country and around the world. We'd love to see more Hollywood movies getting a wider release and making more money. So, you know, there you go. That's what's happening around the world. And I'm sure the success of Super Mario Brothers and others uh, was appealing. Uh, and, of course, that must have been the talk of CinemaCon. Everybody's at CinemaCon. And uh, as I, uh, there's sort of one big takeaway from CinemaCon, Sperling, isn't there? And I think that takeaway does allude to Field of Dreams. If you release them, they will come. That is correct. And that is exactly what, what uh, everybody is finding. To give you some sense as to how important uh, this year's cinema What does that mean? Was, what does that mean? If Tell you them. put a movie in movie theaters, people will, will come if it's even <laughs> happening. You know. uh, and, and David Zasloff, uh, or as, as I like to call him, Zaz, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're, we're on a first name basis. Like sure, that. sure. Uh, he came and the best, the funniest part was, so he, you know, they all have speeches written in there on the teleprompter and the teleprompter operator is trying to figure out where is he in this speech? <laughs> he was just talking off the cuff. He was basically explaining why it is, it, why it is important to put movies in movie theaters and and how important it is to Warner Brothers. And then, you know, and then he name dropped Oprah Winfrey. And then he brought Oprah Winfrey out. 
Like he was like, you know, when I when I was doing this deal with, uh, you know, taking over Warner Brothers, uh, I got a call from Oprah and uh, my my friend Oprah, <laughs> and she was and she said, oh, we're making a movie for you, uh, and sure enough, she was making a movie called The Color Purple. So, um, it you know, I, I guess you you you're right. Uh, the Mario Brothers movie helped. But it wasn't just Mario Brothers. It was a full year's worth of movies uh, from Avatar to movies that were doing well in February. John Wick. John Wick doing incredibly well. It's, you know, basically what you have now is you have, I I can't remember, I'm going to get all of this wrong. I should have written it all down. But you have Disney releasing 13 films instead of six or seven. You have, um, you know, I think it was Paramount that had something like 20 movies. Uh, or, or they're trying to get up to 20 movies, and that's where uh, Warner Brothers would like to be. You've got <laughs> Amazon and Apple putting movies in theaters. Yes, Sony releasing, I think, 23 movies. Uh, Universal re- releasing upwards of 20-something movies. So that's what needs to happen. Now, what I would like to do is sit the industry down and show them what a calendar is, because, <laughs> yes, we get it. May, June, and July do exist. Thank you very much. We get it. But you're opening way too many movies in that period of time. There is no reason that Oppenheimer needs to be coming out in the middle of summer. I'm sorry. Oppenheimer should be coming out. He has a history of counter-programming with a serious film in the summer. Yes. How did that work for Tenet? I mean, granted, that's that's probably a bad example. That's that's a bad example. Dunkirk. uh, Dunkirk would be a great example of a successful counter-programming. I don't don't think there's a bad time of year to release a movie, and I think that is actually good counter-programming. It's when you get three animated films or three family-friendly films on the same weekend that we have a big problem. And Mario Brothers is a great example that April, you know, March for John Wick, April for Super Mario Brothers, February a lost opportunity, August... And September, perhaps lost opportunities. That's where you need to counterpunch and put some big stuff because people want to go to movies year round. Well, and when you look at what Warner Brothers is doing towards the end of uh, the year, you have, uh, I mean, it's just unbelievable. Dune. They have, you have Dune, then you have Aquaman, then you have The Color Purple, all within three weeks of one another. Well, it's like but Color Purple, is, Color Purple is a very different audience, perhaps. The, a, a serious musical drama is not the same audience as Aquaman. I mean, they all want to be big four-quadrant movies. There's another phrase I should ban. They all want to be big, popular movies. They all need to be big, popular movies in order to be profitable. So you're right, but when are they supposed to oh, release them? I, I forgot. They have Willy Wonka, too, uh, in the yeah. middle of all that. In so, a three-week period? Yeah. Well, now it's already then platform. Yeah, Aquaman is December 25th, opposite the color purple, because that, you know, it's like. Well, is color purple platformed? I would imagine it's going to be somewhat platformed. Well, then that makes a difference. Then it means it's really opening up in January, isn't it? Yeah, probably. More more so, yes. Yeah, Uh, these things matter. And by the way, they showed. Uh, Barbie. They showed like an extended trailer of Barbie. No, you're jumping ahead. You're jumping ahead. Oh, okay. Never mind. Sorry. <laughs> the, um, so uh, let's see here. No, it doesn't look like their platform. I mean, it doesn't say, I don't see a later release date for the color purple. So it's not clear to me that it's platformed yet. But yeah, you can always nitpick on their, not nitpick, but make serious complaints about that. But overall, they did bump up their predictions. Outside experts say, hey, you know what? 2023 is already looking better than we 
thought. Instead of whatever, we look like we're going to hit $32 billion worldwide, which is, of course, a far cry from what we made in 2019, but it's a lot better than last year and the year before. It's a quicker recovery than they were thinking. Yeah, I mean, you look at the flash, that, well, you tell me what, obviously you have some <laughs> script for how you want to talk about CinemaCon, but I mean. I, I just put that question at the end, so towards the end. Anyway, a lot oh, okay. of stuff happened while CinemaCon was on, not all technically happening or announced at CinemaCon. A lot of people getting fired, unfortunately. We got a writer strike looming, but we also have Disney firing another 4,000 people uh, right during the beginning of CinemaCon. Amazon Studios, uh, media. Media companies like Vice and BuzzFeed were laying off lots of people. I just ran out of time to include them all. Uh, Disney is suing Florida on First Amendment grounds. Seems like a pretty good case to this amateur Perry Mason. But uh, the um, the board of that special uh, oversight committee uh, in that special district, they are now suing Disney. That was just announced a few minutes ago. Uh, talk about synergy. When you had Zaz there, David Zaslov, I wish you had asked him about Batman. You got this series, Batman Caped Crusader, an animated series from Matt Reeves and J.J. Abrams, which was dumped by Max. And now it's headed to Amazon, along with a holiday flick called Merry Little Batman and a kitty series called Bat Family. Now, that is not the synergy we were looking for. Why would they let, why would you, after the success of the Batman, why would you want to let their attempt to reboot Batman Cape Crusader, perhaps the most success they've ever had practically in Batman, creatively, is arguably a Batman TV series. And now they've got a new one from these people and they let it go away to Amazon. I can't imagine why it didn't make sense to keep that in the HBO Discovery Max Plus family. I have no idea. I know that James Gunn and uh, Peter Safran are there now and they have a whole plan for everything. But that's and not got nothing to do with the animated series on television. That's a different... I have no different. idea. Well, here's a fun fact that I found. I don't even know where I found it and you didn't know about it. Uh, one of the coverage of CinemaCon mentioned that Cinemark said 60% of their canola oil came from Ukraine. So when you talk about supply chain issues and the stuff that the world that we're living in and the challenges they face around the world, wow, most of their canola oil came from Ukraine. Ukraine, really one of the bread baskets of the world. So one more reason to care about what's happening there. But here was the question I was going to set you up for. We know all there were a gazillion movies that showed footage and trailers and great. And my question for you was and is, you know, everybody was excited by everything. They're all, they all want every movie to work, of course. But what was the movie that really wowed them even more than expected? Really surprised everyone. Just, wow, I'm actually doubly excited for that movie. Barbie. Boom. There you go. Tell yeah, us. Yeah, I mean, that uh, trailer looked uh, amazing. I mean, just because I'll be honest, I was not looking forward to seeing this movie. I wasn't even planning to see this movie. But that movie laugh out loud funny i mean people were rolling in the, no, it was, the for the trailer you didn't see the film well we saw an extended trailer uh right right right, right. this is very funny co-written and directed by greta gerwig who is a talented director co-written by noah bombach and her and i have to say the trailer i thought was great it was very funny it was looked very good it popped out at you super cool looking looks like it checks all the boxes you know the little sauciness but family friendly i'm sure overall and it just looked like a lot of fun. And it looked, they can maintain that, that tone and that vibe of Barbie and Ken in the real world. Uh, it, could be, it could be a real winner. So I have to admit, it looked like a lot of fun to me too. Um, and, and I said, you know, what played poorly? Like, of course, you know, whatever, everything wants everything. And you were like, you know what? Nothing. 
Well, Blue Beetle, Blue Beetle, people were like, why are we, why are we spending Ooh. half an hour on this? Uh, this is a, a DC comics comic with, with a with a, a, a latin hero uh so a, a rare superhero movie with a latin person at the center so that's unfortunate to hear it didn't play well um it's a lesser known book for sure comic book and so uh, if it can get good good reviews and stuff it'll work just like any other but uh, sorry to hear it didn't play very well was it more about the trailer or was it more about just they spent too much time on a movie they don't really know about i think it's probably the the latter but isn't CinemaCon where they can help people know and get excited about movies they don't understand or know about this is where they go okay i thought i knew what barbie was for little girls but in fact now i know oh it looks really great so yeah, the problem it, is that you have egos involved, right? So you bring Barbie out, you spend you know twenty minutes on that. If you if you don't spend twenty minutes on on the next film, then uh, even if you think, look, this is a five minutes and we're out, like show the trailer and and be you know maybe bring the director out, uh, you know, but that's not what they did. Uh, you know, I I think uh, they they spent time on the Flash. I did notice they did not bring the lead actor of the Flash out. Um, they brought the director out. Uh, and the director alone. Well, of course the they didn't bring out the actor. Of course they didn't bring out Ezra Miller. That would create all sorts of questions and stuff they'd have to deal with. Yeah. The, um, it, it, the film is good. The film, you know, you know me. I'm not a big fan. You saw fan. the whole film, right? I saw the whole film. Yes. Right. Let me tell you it's not all locked. the spoilers. It's not locked. Yes, please do. Um, well, it's not locked, but it's it's fairly locked. It's, yeah. It's pretty close. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little long, but then all these movies are a little long. So. Uh, but it's got a lot of spoilers. I mean, a ton of spoilers. Mm-hmm. So it's got lots of uh, fun cameos. stuff. Fun yeah, stuff. Exactly. To, yeah, there's a lot of crossover with Batman and stuff like that. It works. The and whole it, thing works. And it's, it has an emotional core. I mean, like, because I don't really care about The Flash. I've never watched the TV show. I've never read the comic book. But you're like, as a story, a child, the parents, this really has a core that's really going to work for people. Yeah, uh, Lionsgate showed Joyride, which uh, that uh, was really funny. That was, you know, people really like and very touching towards the end. So, uh, you know, the movies are good. The question is, how can we get audiences to know, hey, this this is a movie you should see. Uh, it's it's Top Gun wowed. I mean, Mission Impossible wowed, of course. Yes. Indiana Jones uh, looked good. Um, what about they Dune? Also- what about Dune? It was, I have to give you credit. I texted Sperling, oh, how was, every time they announced a new trust, how was Barb, how was this? I was just sort of joking, and I said, how was Dune? And you said, very sandy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that movie, uh, you know, Denis Villeneuve said, look, you know, the first one was world building. Uh, the first, the first <laughs> set movie. Set it up. Was set, set up. Set it up. And, and the second movie is, is basically an action movie. Is there a hint in, the, was it just a trailer or did you see 20 minutes or what did you see? No, no, no. They showed like an extended, like five minutes of oh, okay. the film. So is there any sense of him being a controversial figure? Because he is sort of a white savior, but if you read the books, it's not exactly like he's this noble, wonderful guy that you think, oh, he's sort of unleashing the apocalypse. And it's sort of like, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, it's not all positive about, uh, about uh, our hero in Dune. Uh, you didn't really get that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, what you did get the sense of is, why are they making two films out of Wicked, the musical? It's like, it uh, oh, looks yeah. like they, well, they the said 2024 and 20. What do you want to cut? You want to cut songs? You want to cut story? You know, you go see the show on Broadway, it's three hours long. Oh, it you is? Want- okay. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I know, know it's got that perfect middle, that, that act break is perfect. Like, yeah. But I've always found the first act to be great and the second act to be, eh. 
Well, I don't like Wicked. It's not a good show, though. It's I can imagine with the original cast. I thought the book was actually good by Winnie Holtzman of uh, of uh, my so called life fame, based on the novel by Jerry uh, Gregory Maguire. Um, I have to say, I really did enjoy the book more than I expected. Not a big fan of the songs or the show as a whole, but you know, and I'm a big Broadway person, so that's that's saying something. But uh, yeah, you know. Um, they showed uh, like some stuff. For, you know, they're still shooting it. it looks amazing. It's it, really it, good. Is it two years apart? Like one Christmas and the next Christmas is the Correct. next one. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah, you know, it's like I w- I would prefer, especially this day and age where you can see so much at the same time. If I had my druthers, I would have done one at Thanksgiving and the other at Christmas. That to me would be the way to get excitement going. You see, it and then eight weeks later, ten weeks later, you get to see the other one, or even summer Christmas. You know, build it up that way so that you don't have to wait a year. Because you know, why wait? Yeah, but I mean, look at the end of the day. There was a lot of positivity. And, and normally, you know, yes, you're trying to be positive at a show like that. The last two years have felt somewhat artificial in, you know, yeah, we're going to be back. Yeah, totally. there will be a movie out. <laughs> yeah, but now it really, it's, it's, not, it's not artificial. It's, you can see, no, there is a way back. There was a five-year little, you know, speed bump that we hit. Uh, but now we're confident, uh, we being the industry is confident that we're, it's coming back. It's just uh, a matter of getting the movies out. And by the way, they're all talking about their, here's a word we can retire, portfolio of movies. Um, (laughs) As opposed to Slate, is portfolio much more sexy and appropriate? I have no idea, but ultimately they're all trying, you know know what we need? More mid-sized movies, more movies that uh, are in the uh, wheel, you know. So yeah, it, it is time to... To at least acknowledge they can't all be ten poles. Yeah, well, please. Um, so I, I may be wrong. It says that Wicked is two hours and forty-five minutes, including an intermission. Notoriously, uh, I hate it when they do it. Sometimes it says they including an intermission, and that means there's another fifteen-minute or twenty-minute break. Other times they say including an intermission, and they include it in the running time they give you, which is of course the only thing you want to know. If it starts at seven, do I get out at ten? Or do I get it now? You know, so it may be that it's only two and a half hours of actual running time of show, in which case you could strongly argue that they should have just made one damn long movie. <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. So so you may be right about that. But um, so there you go. The big news, of course, are the movies. That's what matters. But when you talk about the machinations, the things going on, uh, the big news at, at CinemaCon was the new guy at NATO, John Fithian stepping away and Michael O'Leary stepping in. We've talked about him before and how there seemed a more likely insider that could have had that job. And Michael O'Leary came out of nowhere. He has some experience at the MPA, but Basically, in his early interviews, he looked, oh, wow, you know, I went to a movie and I got to sit back on a couch and have some wine. It was just like, it was like he hadn't been to a movie in 20 years and didn't know what was going on in the industry. He's trying to catch up, which again, why do you hire someone who has to be caught up on the movie industry? But that's just me. Here he was here at NATO, the passing of the torch. How did he do? You know, uh, I think the jury is still out. Uh, He did seem to hold his own. Uh, during the press conference that uh, was held. But, you know, he was talking about future, the future. Uh, he, uh, he, he did good, 
Uh, I, I can't really say. Did he seem know, to know the industry now? Was he like, oh, yes, you have movies, and then they come out on DVD? You were like, no, no well. it was more like, <laughs> here's what a trade organization should do. Here's what a lobbying uh-huh. group should I do. I lobby. Gov- he knows how to lobby. <laughs> right. It's a lot of government relations. Uh-huh. That's basically what, uh, what and, they. Yeah, but his attitude was it doesn't matter what you're lobbying for. What matters is how you lobby. So, like, the fact that I got to catch up on movies, whatever, you know, what's, what does it, could be a widget. And that doesn't really inspire people when you don't know the difference between the auto industry and the film industry and computers that each industry has special needs and things and culture and stuff. And his attitude was sort of like, yeah, you know, I know how to lobby. <laughs> that was kind of what it was going in. Does he seem more versed in film and the world and what yes. people are concerned about? M- more so now than he did uh, in, in February when it was announced. Mm-hmm. So. Well, that that's, should be expected. Uh, I have to say there's a lot of a lot of internal stuff going on at NATO. Uh, the big guys, Cinemark, AMC, and Regal, uh, I think uh, they've still got some bad bad blood about NATO and COVID. Uh, but of course, uh, when COVID happened, small companies got government help. Publicly traded companies got nothing. And in the industry, didn't matter, cars, military, uh, uh, widgets, you know, whoever you are, if you were publicly traded, you didn't get the government support that you did if you were a small company and had a certain size of employees. And so that meant the medium and small theater companies around the country, the exhibitors, got some government money, whereas the big chains did not get the same support. And I think they sort of blamed their their trading group, even though they were in the same boat as Amazon and Apple and GM. So, you know, to blame your trade group for not getting you more money is a little narrow-minded when you can see it was the same thing all over the country for every industry. But maybe uh, Michael O'Leary, they hope to turn the page with him. They hope to have a bigger voice. You would think the big guys would dominate NATO. You would think they would mostly set the agenda. Is there any sense that Michael O'Leary knows what matters to the big guys and knows that they're the ones that are footing the bill and, you know, throw their weight around a lot more than the moms and pops. Yeah. I mean, there's a sense that Michael O'Leary is there to take care of the big public companies, that he was handpicked by them. If not handpicked, then certainly chosen by, by basically the AMCs and Regals of the world to do their bidding, uh, both in Washington and maybe in, in Hollywood, uh, and that, uh, you know, they don't really, ca- they look at these small independent circuits and th- that whether you're, whether you have 130 screens or, or, or 13 or one, they look at, uh, at those as competition. What I would remind the big players of is, you know, that, that company that has 130 screens that mm-hmm. might buy a few, uh, screens and maybe get up to hundred, 180 or 200 screens here in the United States. Guess what? They're the company you eventually buy. Mm-hmm. And that's what you've been doing the whole time. Uh, is acquiring these smaller companies. So you, in a way, you need those companies yeah. if you're going to to uh, acquire them. And in, uh, and, you, and in terms of NATO and what they want, other than COVID, that weird one-in-a-lifetime experience of COVID, surely they all want the same thing. They want lots of movies with good, solid windows of at least 45 days. They want better terms, you know, from right. the studios. So aren't they all on the same page 90% of the time? Yeah, try to get uh, any two exhibitors, no matter how big or small they are, to agree on anything. Good luck. You know, it's like even on even on uh, even on the the break breakdown between them and studios. Don't they all want better breaks? They want better percentages. Yes, but they all want better than the next guy. 
That's the, you know, it's like, well, they, they can't the, collude, of course. They can't yes, collude. Exactly. But there you go. But surely NATO in general believes that they all should have not 30% on opening weekend, but 40%. You know, right. Anyway, well, I wonder what he makes. Do you know what Michael O'Leary makes? I'm sure it's six figures. Is it seven figures? I don't know. I think it's in the two hundred dollars to $500,000 range. It's That's, somewhere in there. Yeah, it's about 260000 I think, is sort of the reporter for like maybe a newbie at NATO. But uh, lots of people getting salaries. I love to report on them. The Liberty head, the Liberty CEO and president, Gregory Maffei, got a raise. Not much, but $800,000 raise ain't nothing. His total compensation last year was $22 million. Uh, that's a little over the $21 million he got the year before. But when you add up his takings from 2016, he's made about $200 million over the last seven years. So he's doing all right, six or seven years. By the way, Liberty Media owns Sirius XM, the Atlanta Braves, and Formula One. The folks at Netflix did better. Both Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos received about a $10 million raise, with both men getting $50 million in total compensation. Same for Charlie Collier, who joined Roku last fall. His pay package was about $53 million. Not There's such- an asterisk in that one, though. Okay, what's that? It's a five-year contract, and all of the stock is awarded up front. So, so what? To- oh, please. No, that is not a effing asterisk. You get four hundred gazillion dollars, but it only goes in if your stock does well, and it only you have to stay there for five years. Give me a break. It's more than an emperor makes. That is not an asterisk. That's their old BS about oh, I don't I take a dollar in salary. Yeah, yes, thanks. Whatever. That is not an asterisk. That's total BS. How much do the employees at Roku make? Uh-huh. Probably not fifty three million. Well, let's put yeah. it this way. I think I think the the Actual amount is twenty million in cash, and then the fifty-three is over five years. Twenty but still million. Twenty million. Twenty million. Here's God the problem with God. all of this: the writers are about to go on strike, and the people that control the companies that they're striking yeah. are making twenty million dollars. <laughs> now, Endeavor—it's sad news over at Endeavor. It's now a public company, and that means poor Ari Emanuel. In its first full year, his pay package dropped two hundred and eighty-one million dollars from three hundred million dollars to 19 million dollars by the way uh, by the way that that's another one of those like the way you account for things is you put it all in the first year so that's why that happens but go ahead sorry it doesn't matter if it's 300 million over 20 years it's still an obscene amount of money that's by still 30 million dollars oh, no wait uh, that would be 15 million dollars whatever it yes, is it's yes. a lot of money <laughs> yes exactly but now he's only making 19 million dollars poor guy by the way if you make the minimum wage you would have to work you know, 50 weeks a year, uh, all year long for 1200 years to make $18 million. Now, okay. Maybe you say, well, you know what? I make a hundred thousand a year. Well, you'd only have to work 200 years to make $19 million. Oh, well, we wanted to figure out uh, how much you would have to work to make $300 million, but we needed two calculators and we couldn't afford them. In contrast, Live Nation CEO, Michael Rapino, he's been in charge for 18 years at the company. Nonetheless, he re-upped his deal and got a signing bonus. Isn't that nice? You've been in the job for 18 years and you get a signing bonus. So we got a $6 million pat on the back, but that's chump change. Overall, he got $139 million this year at Live Nation. The CEFO at Live Nation got a relatively measly $52 million, which includes his signing bonus. I'd love a signing bonus for re-upping at Showbiz Sandbox next year. By the way, you may be wondering, Live Nation, didn't they anger Taylor Swift? Didn't they screw up with The Cure? Aren't they being dragged in front of Congress and pilloried from, you know, post? It just goes to show you there's too much money not going to the right people. But Live Nation, what matters there? Public image or the fact that concert attendance and revenue grew this year. 
So there you go. Um, you, you know, know who's not getting uh, a- any of their of, of their uh, money this Who? year? Jeff Shell. Well, he's not getting his, his stock options. I don't know. I think that's the extra compensation. I think he still gets his base salary. But yes, that's got to hurt. But that'll be coming along in um, in Inside Baseball. But oh, first, okay. I wonder if you're watching anything on streaming. We've got the new Nielsen numbers. Unlike Comscore, we're getting the Nielsen numbers. Ooh, let's pit them against each other. Comscore, we say that only because we love and need your scores. So get your movie worldwide box office posted as soon as possible. Nielsen has the numbers for streaming. And The Night Agent is a big hit on Netflix. This show just jump from like two plus billion minutes last week to three billion minutes this week. So the night agent had great word of mouth and is doing really, really well on streaming. I look at the list of stuff on streaming and think, wow, I've got a lot of stuff to watch. And when you look at the overall chart of the top 10, you'll see shows like Grey's Anatomy on there and NCIS, uh, of course, and Bluey and Coco Melon, which probably haven't had new episodes in a while. And at number seven is South Park on HBO Max. South Park. No new episodes, I think, in the mix. There are just a handful based on the fights between HBO Max and Paramount. But when you wonder why they're fighting over South Park, a show that's decades old, that's why. It's still hugely popular when it comes to streaming. I mean, it's a really big deal. Oh, well, if that's a big deal, I wonder what you think of some of the stories in this week's segment big deal or big whoop that's our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and we tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense here's our first story and we kind of covered this in our last episode but i guess now there's an update uh because this is the story of the year in network tv studios saving money by guaranteeing cast members far fewer episodes it's happened on a bunch of dramas and now it's happening with the sitcom bob hart's abisholo now we talked about that last week but here's the new i think the new bit is only the two leads are guaranteed to appear on every show of the fifth season. And the season is only 13 episodes long. All the other cast members are guaranteed to appear in only five episodes. They might appear in more, and they're free to appear on other shows as long as everyone stays in touch and makes their plans clear to all involved so the writers can, you know, make it all work creatively and they, they don't, like, write you into a into a, an episode where you're off shooting something else. The series has 78 episodes, so a regular fifth season of 22 episodes would have bought the show to the magical 100 episodes and after four seasons by the way is when everyone typically renegotiates since the end zone is in sight not this time is this a big deal or a big whoop well it's a big deal this is a a very serious trend that's happening when you look at the cast list there are about eight or so other people who have appeared on most of the episodes 50 to 70 of these 77 plus episodes that have aired so far that's a lot of people eight people who have could expect to appear on most or all of the episodes suddenly saying, oh, I'm going to be in less than half of the episodes. So that's a big change. And of course, this is a show from Chuck Lorre. It's from Warner Brothers Studio, and it's airing on CBS, so there isn't that internal synergy about getting to 100 episodes. The ratings are still holding steady, so that's not the problem here. They're just saying, we want to save money. The bad thing is they told the cast, hey, don't renegotiate at your fourth year. Let's just wait. Let's just wait a little while. Then they get to the fifth. They're like, yeah, not so many episodes. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, this that, is the problem. It's kind of like, you know, you wonder what the, what are the writers striking about? Right. Well, one of the, more work and things, less money. Yes. They're basically saying, look, we're going to pay you uh, less. And here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to put you on part time. So yeah. it's like the, it's like the waitress or waiter uh, saying, Hey, uh, how come you, how come you cut my shifts? I'm only working like, inst- uh, I'm, instead of working five days a week, I'm working Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. 
Right. Well, and lucky to get Friday. Plus, the back end isn't the same. Now, Bob Hart's Abishola is probably one of the rare shows. It's from a big network show. It's designed for syndication in a way. I'm sure we'll have a streaming deal as well, but I correct. bet this one will strip. So there is that back end possibility, but it's probably much smaller than it used to be. And so, you know, it hurts everybody. So the mere fact that they could be in the fourth season and just on the verge of hitting 100 episodes and basically CBS is like, whatever, you know, they're not all working together to make sure they get to 100. That alone is telling. So it's a it's a whole new world. And exactly. People are getting less work and they're going to get less back end. This show won't be shown as much in streaming. You don't make as much money as you do in syndication. So everybody's making less. And like, ah, what am I going to do 10 years from now when I'm not on a show? You know, I depend on that money. You think, oh, these lucky people that get these residuals. That's how they support themselves for most of their life. Because most of the time, most actors aren't working. Richard Sharp, the head of the BBC, stepped down after a government investigation said he failed to report a potential conflict of interest. Who knew that facilitating a $1 million loan for the prime minister right before he nominated you to head the BBC might be seen as a conflict of interest? Who knew? Uh, Who knew that taking your Supreme Court justice on a 500,000, I'm sorry, uh, big deal or big whoop? Buying the Supreme Court justice's mom's home, renovating it, and letting her live there rent-free with the plan to make it a museum to Clarence Thomas once he's gone. I mean, Lord Almighty. Anyway, so Richard Sharp, I feel bad for him because he's done God's work. He's a former Goldman Sachs banker. Can we have a little sympathy for the guy? Um, I love this. So, you know, he was the only person backed by the conservative cabinet for this position. The only one. And of course, you know, a week earlier, he's like, oh, you need some money for a loan? Oh, here you go. And it was not a quid pro quo. I have no doubt they didn't think twice about it because they don't care about conflicts of interest or the appearance of a conflict of interest. But it's absurd. And why are they turning to a former Goldman Sachs banker to head the BBC? The other guy that they were talking about who might be one of the potential, he's like something else with nothing to do with press or the media like why why a a, a financial guy i don't understand that it's obviously a big financial corporation it's an important skill set but still by the way he's the one who suspended football presenter gary lineker at least he was in charge gary lineker of course was a freelancer working for the bbc who dared to criticize the government's stance on immigration and so sharp suspended him just as he had donated four hundred thousand pounds to the conservative party and uh, then Lineker just now tweeted, by the way, you know what? The head of the BBC should not be selected by the government in charge. And that includes the liberals. Like, this should not be something that politicians get to weigh in on, liberal or conservative. The BBC should be in charge. You have a panel of independent experts who decide who is best to run the BBC, not influenced by the politicians in charge of the moment. God forbid. It's the end of an era. Netflix is shutting down its DVD business. Big whoop. No, I'm sorry. Uh, The final discs will be mailed out on September 29th. Those little red envelopes containing DVDs and Blu-rays actually were Netflix's business for many years, helping it compete with the blockbusters of the world, at least here in the United States. I don't think they were international. Then Netflix pivoted to providing the same access to films and TV shows via digital streaming. Then it decided... 
that, hey, you know, maybe it should create and own some of his own content rather than just pay more and more and more money to license shows like Friends or wait for Warner Brothers. I mean, Max, it is Max now, right? Yeah, I yep. think it is. Uh, to launch its own streaming service. In 2022, the physical DVD Blu-ray rental business generated $150 million for Netflix. So it's a sad day, but here's the question. How sad, really? When, when was the last time you used your Blu-ray player? Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal when you look at how many movies are not available on streaming. Oh, my God. And I can't believe nobody wants it, but of course they do. Redbox said, well, we would like to buy it. They tried to buy it a few years ago, and Netflix was like, no. Now they've reached out again, and Netflix says, no. <laughs> yeah, because any time you're watching a DVD, right, you're not watching Netflix. And that's, that's the, the thinking. What I would say is you're right. In that regard, it is a big deal. But what, what needs to happen is what movies are available on DVD and Blu-ray that should be made available on the next medium, whether it's streaming or, well, you know, it, that need to be accessible. And what I would also say is, uh, you know, I played trumpet and I, I got a, uh, a, uh, a, a book, uh, a, you know, uh, some sheet music, uh -huh. uh, a lesson book. And in it was a DVD for how to play this each each lesson um and i was like where well, how am i ever gonna play i don't even know where my dvd player is not <laughs> but then i looked it up on youtube sure enough it's there yeah there so they go. put the, the yeah thankfully put put it on uh well it's a shame every time there's a new technology a lot of stuff falls through the cracks and a lot of it never gets recovered i can make you a list as long as your arm of stuff that's not available on streaming or dvd that used to be on tv it's a shame uh the first dvd they mailed out was beetlejuice we will surely find out what the last dvd or blu-ray they mail out was netflix also said they are cracking down on password sharing in the u.s starting now yes so they are starting now so we'll have to see what happens with that Regional sports networks are in a world of hurt as consumers switch to bundled channels via online companies like YouTube TV, or they cut the cord entirely and just stick with Netflix and Max. What's a sports team that expected its own cable channel to gross hundreds of millions of dollars supposed to do? <laughs> the, the Phoenix Suns have an idea. Meet consumers where they are. Usually in the parking lot, by the way. That's where mm. they... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Keep going. Keep going. Uh, the Sun signed a two-part deal, including uh, broadcast TV and streaming. Local TV channels will broadcast all the Sun's basketball games over the air, so anyone with a cable package or TV antenna can watch them all. Or, if they prefer, people can pay for streaming access to all the games. This makes their games available in 2.8 million households, triple the number who previously had access to the games, plus streaming. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it seems pretty obvious to me. You know, let's let's make sure our games are available to as many people as possible. When you narrow the number of people who even have the chance to stumble across your basketball or football or baseball game, you are narrowing the chance for people to become fans or people who aren't watching them all the time to say, oh, the team's doing a little well. I want to check it out. Oh, I can't because I don't subscribe to your particular, you know, app. You know, so you really want to have a broad-based opportunity to reach people when you have a broad-based team in your region that you want to be really popular long-term. Make it as easy as possible to watch your team. Do not limit people if you don't have to. If you tried out ChatGPT, you probably giggled over its propensity for making stuff up and generally getting things wrong. Michael was at an event where people detailed their difficulty in getting it to write a poem in free verse, despite telling it again and again what it was getting wrong. So not ready for prime time? Except maybe it is. Recently, a photographer won a competition and then declared the photo was created using AI, 
actually declined to accept the award. At the same time, a new song collaboration between Drake and The Weeknd was turning into a hit with millions of listens until it too was revealed as a fake and quickly taken down by Spotify and uh, everybody else. Even professionals at the photo competition got fooled and certainly the algorithms at the music streaming services couldn't spot a fraud. Even one pretending to be some of the most famous acts in the world. Can you believe that? It's like, no, you couldn't no. tell that it's the weekend. It's worrisome, but at least they haven't learned how to do a podcast. I mean, wait, uh, they haven't, have they? Hello, welcome to Showbiz Sandbox. Today we have some movies. Yep, ha, we're, ha, ha, we're ha, good. Ha, ha, we're ha. still good. Well, wait a second. Maybe if it laughs at my jokes, we can talk. Okay. Hey! Uh, is this a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal. It's going to have a big impact. It's going to, don't tell your kids to become coders. Tell them to learn, teach them to learn how to use AI. <laughs> That's what you want to yes. do because that is the new tool. Um, how could a song claiming to be from Drake and The Weeknd get online? I don't understand that. We are learning more and more how... Uh, the streamers host a gazillion tracks, a big chunk of which literally never get played, an even bigger chunk of which almost never get played, less than 10 streams over a year. So why are you hosting them? You don't have to let every schmuck in the world upload their music to your service. Surely they could just begin by saying, let's only allow stuff from the people we recognize. And let's demand that the third party people who are you know, providing a gate for people who want to have their stuff posted, who are struggling artists, make sure they do a better job of not allowing crap in it. And then you won't have to have in all this 30 second junk from AI and stuff that's fake and stuff claiming to be an artist that they're not. And then you save a lot of money by not hosting them all. I, and just begin by accepting the ones from people, you know, most people won't care about not hearing that obscure track from somebody they've never heard of and somebody who they never will heard of. So it does, I don't get it. Governor Ron DeSantis, big deal or but no, just kidding. He's oh, the wait, Florida. Wait, oh yeah, we 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 got this already from uh, from up above. They're suing each other. Everybody's suing each other. His attacks continued on on Disney. He said, you know what? Maybe I'll just open a prison right across the street from Disney. It's like, good lord. <laughs> yeah. So so you know they're all suing each other, and it's uh, this story has been a little bit uh, outdated. But this was like two weeks ago. The fact that they passed a state law that they were going to do new safety inspections at Disney because before then. Disney was in charge of its own safety inspections. Two problems here. One, why the hell was Disney in charge of its own safety inspections? Just like the fact that you might think this special district that was created 70 whatever years ago for Disney was a little funky and maybe it should be slowly unraveled if possible, though, you know, it's one of your biggest employers and tax bases in the state. So think twice, be careful. But you say, oh, you know what? Disney should not be in charge of its safety inspections. I agree with that. But they also, all the other big players, Universal and, and all those other major uh, parks, they are in charge of their own safety inspections, which is crazy. And the state law only changes the rules for Disney. So they're clearly targeting one company, which I believe is unconstitutional, legal, and shouldn't stand up in court. More importantly, I don't want those other companies. So they're doing it for the wrong reason, but they happen to be doing something that should be done. So it's really annoying that they should do something like this for base political reasons, rather than the very good reason that these companies should not be in charge of their own safety inspections. So do it right and do it for everybody. Yeah, well, that's part of the problem. That's why I predict that the, that the state of Florida will have to settle this lawsuit because 
they are in the wrong here. I mean, you can't, you can't. Yeah, they said we're targeting you because you, yes, you can't and, do it. And Disney, Disney was not going full throttle and full throated to a, to fight the governor every year. They were like, yeah, we don't really like this gay law. You know, they, they were very mealy mouthed about it. They had to be pushed by their employees. They made the mildest of protests and the governor could have just said, yeah, you know, uh, well, that's why I listen to the people of Florida, not to big multinational corporations. End of discussion. Disney would have made its public protest very mildly, and the governor would have said, I listen to the people, and they would have moved on with their lives. Instead, he made it a personal vendetta. So we'll see how right. that plays and, out. And he's trying to run for president, and he's, and he's getting lapped by Disney every second. It doesn't look very good. Would you like to be in a debate and have that on your record where somebody could say, yeah, you're really good at this well, whole governing the, in the, thing. In the primaries, you might want it. In the Republican primaries, because they love criticizing big multinational corporations for being, you know, not hating their employees or hating gay people. That seems to be a big winning formula. So it might work in the primaries. So yeah, taking on Disney may be a plus for him in the primaries. But general election, not so much. And when you don't do it effectively and well, that certainly makes you look weak. Yeah, well, I can't remember Citizens United. You know where they said, "Nope, a company is a person." Yeah. You know, you can't, you can't, you can't uh, limit their speech. So then, doing all yep. of this against one—I mean, it just—you look at it and go, "Do you not see the hypocrisy?" Well, guess what? The law does and will, and so you better actually back off of this. Anyway, uh, the BMG music business is ending ageism. Woo-hoo! That's pretty much so Great. big deal, right? Yeah, well, the company great. announced it would be streamlining its operations and getting rid of different divisions devoted to catalog and new music. So music is music, says BMG. Now there will be one group focused on marketing, another on packaging and so on, rather than different silos devoted to catalog and current artists. And I mean, why? Because fans don't care that the business considers any album released more than 18 months ago to be quote unquote catalog. Any And why, by the way? have two divisions devoted to packaging albums when one division can handle a new act like Adam Lambert as easily as the kinks. Oh, and in an age of streaming, some 70% of BMG streaming comes from catalog titles. So, you know, there you go. Big deal or big whoop. Well, it's a big whoop, I suppose, but it certainly makes sense. I used to get separate press releases from like Sony Legacy, which would be older stuff, box sets, things being repackaged, 10th anniversary, 20th and so on, and an entirely different PR team and people handling a new release by a new Sony act. To me, this makes all the sense in the world. Why have that duplication of services? You can handle the reissue of Fleetwood Mac's Rumors just as you can handle the new Harry Styles album. I should probably pick artists who are on the same labels, but I'm not bothering. But you get the idea. It's the same thing. And it matters just as much. The older stuff is not less important, especially when a lot of your streaming and stuff and all your activities are coming from those older acts. It makes all the more sense in the world to make them as much a priority and have everybody on the same page so that you're not saying, oh, they had that scheduled this week. You know, oh, I didn't know that. You know, everybody's on the same page. It's one team. You know what's happening with all your different artists, no matter whether it's legacy or new. And it just presumably will save them some money and makes a lot of sense. Well, that wraps up Big Deal or Big Whoop for this week and moves us right along into Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and, more importantly, how they affect you. And this week, here's how it affects you. If your name is Jeff Shell, please do not report to Universal Studios for work tomorrow. Ouch, ouch. Let me let me lead this and see what you think about it. Jeff Shell was fired for cause, says NBC Universal. And that leaves the fate of Hulu and Peacock up in the air, 
Some say. That's the big thing I want to talk about. Anyway, CNBC reporter Hadley Gamble said Shell sexually harassed her. An internal investigation proved her case. Uh, Shell, by the way, ironically, was involved in the ouster of Ron Meyer for his affair that turned into an extortion plot. And he was a big proponent of collapsing theatrical windows and signed deals during the pandemic, collapsing the windows to 17 days for some wide theatrical releases. Uh, he's also uh, overseen and championing Peacock, which now has about 20 million subscribers. So Jeff Shell is out. As we reported before, uh, he may lose out on his pay package of $43 million. Obviously, they will go to court or arbitration. He's going to fight that. No, I'm he's sure. decided he's decided not to fight it because he doesn't really? want to take it. Yes, he has decided to forego the, the fight. Wow. He really must not have had a leg to stand on if he didn't think he could get any more than that. My question to you is, why in God's name would that leave the fate of Hulu and Peacock up in the air? Surely, NBC Universal's entire philosophy uh, and streaming and decision-making does not come down to one guy. No, even if, I, even yeah, if he's I don't a big champion, surely like he's gone, oh, okay, we don't care about Peacock? Like, are you kidding? That seems bizarre. Yeah, well, certainly Hulu is the, the issue here. And because th- uh, in 2024, uh, Disney has to buy the, the rest and, of Hulu. And or NBC can purchase it from Disney, yeah. Right, and the question is, for how much? Uh, and it's this weird you know, tug of war that they're in. Uh, and... Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know why they was Certainly Peacock, yeah, that makes no sense at all. I don't know where they're getting that from. Now, were you f- surprised that Don Lemon was fired by CNN? No. What, no was I, I surprised that Don Lemon was fired by CNN? No. He was on their new morning show, and he insulted women, older women. And the main audience for morning television is women, especially older women. So really bad thing to do. And your female co-host, not happy with you. You didn't do a good job of dealing with it. Then came a bunch of news about other stuff that you've said or done that looks a little iffy and not so, so cool. And suddenly, you know, he was out, but he seemed shocked. He was like, what? (laughs) He's like, are you kidding me? So, uh, you know, CNN head Chris Licht said Don Lemon would, quote, forever be a part of the CNN family. End quote. Well, yes, except for the fact that you just fired him. I mean, what a meaningless statement. You're fired, but you'll always be part of the family. (laughs) Well, I I kind of look at, you know, because I'll I'll watch, you know, I work late. You know, I work a lot of hours. And so I'll turn on CNN sometimes just to see what's going on in the background. I'm like, what is going on in the nine o'clock hour? What's going on in the 10 o'clock hour? Like, they're just so all over the place. Yeah. They have, whatever they're doing at CNN, it's not working. So I would try and you don't have to be you know take a political side and be a conservative or a liberal just do that do something interesting with the news you know report it yes but you know you had all of those cnn well those, films prime temp, those talking head shows are are you know people expressing their opinions but yes they have cnn documentaries which they're doing more in-house they have you know uh, newscasts, obviously, for much of the day where they just purport on the news. But in the prime time, they tended to have talking heads who would have be personalities and give their opinion. Whether that's something that they should pivot away from is the question. Should they do something more like 60 Minutes where they're packaging investigative stories and in-depth stories? That's what they seem to be leaning towards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, but I, you know, I never watched Don Lemon regularly, but I liked him when I saw him. Thought he was a good guy on air. I liked his 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 personality and thing really 
jaw-dropping the thing he said in the morning news like really like that's a little dumb so it's 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 sorry to see but given given the history and and what he said i'm not surprised yeah and i didn't know i didn't see it live and i don't think no, i've no. Seen, seen it uh since when the clip that i saw made it seem like he was saying isn't she past her political prime but then the way he said it no no yeah, no he, it, he, it didn't, was he was not making he's no women are past their prime in their in their fifties, maybe they're forty. You know, women are in their prime in their twenties and thirties. Maybe their forties was what he said, and he was talking about women in general. Women are past Oof. their prime. Yeah, no, no, no. It was there was no couching it like, and there's no reason on God's green earth a woman would be less in her prime in politics than in some other area of life because that makes no sense. You know, it's bas- it basically was a moronic, bizarre thing to say. He apologized, said he was wrong. Whether you accepted that and felt he could make reparations, obviously CNN felt like, no, he was not going to undo that damage to that women. You know, people, they claim people didn't want to be on the show, didn't want to be interviewed by him, that it became sort of poison. Uh, how quickly, you know, your career can turn. He was canceled. It's like, no, you know what? He said something really bad on the air that insulted a majority of their target audience. And they decided it wasn't worth trying to repair him when he probably wasn't a good fit for morning time anyway. But hopefully he can learn from it. He's a talented guy. I imagine he'll get work elsewhere. Somebody else said, don't feel sorry for these people. Feel sorry for the people who have to work for people who are jerks. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. You know, I think that Chris Licht was like, wait, they fired Tucker Carlson at Fox? Quick, fire Don Lemon. It'll totally fly under the radar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's what happened next. Tell us. Well, uh, Fox News, uh, first they, they had to pay out $787 million. Uh, See what happens two weeks in like a, this sounds like old, old news, right? Oh, that, that's, we already, it's like $800 million to Dominion. The court ruled Fox lied repeatedly, even before the trial began. They acknowledged that obliquely, though people were like, Dominion should have waited and made them say they were wrong and they lied. It's like Dominion is not in the business of saving the media or democracy. They're in the business of rescuing this company that has been, you know, kneecapped by what Fox News did. Uh, I mean, you know, I don't think you pay more than $750 million if you didn't lie. (laughs) Alex, this is the biggest one ever, perhaps, other than maybe Alex Jones, who was ordered to pay $1.4 billion to the families that he lied about and claimed that they hadn't really lost their children and that, the grotesque lies, he said. That's probably the only the larger defamation judgment in history, even if you adjust for inflation. So now they've dumped Tucker Carlson. They also failed to re-up weekend host Dan Bongino. Bongino. Oh, Bongino. Whoa, okay. Who apparently, if you're super right wing, you're a fan of. I've never heard of him. <laughs> yeah, I had, has, I had never heard of him either. Tucker has been fired or ousted from Fox News, MSNBC, and CNN. That's a trifecta, baby. Come on here. We'll fire you from Showbiz Sandbox as well. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I think uh, it's no secret that he was somewhat toxic uh, just as a personality. I mean, just- well, he was, but they didn't care. And he had rebounded in terms of advertising because I thought maybe, you know what, we'd heard for a while he wasn't bringing in the money, but they were using his show to promote other shows because it was still very popular with viewers. Now, of course, he replaced Bill O'Reilly and he seemed to be toxic to advertisers for a while, but never at a Glenn Beck level where like nobody, you know, you just got gold, whatever. So in 2022, he had really rebounded. He generated $77 million in revenue from his hour Versus $50 million for Sean Hannity and $53 million for Laura Ingraham. That's a lot more 
That's a lot of money, $20 million extra dollars. Uh, you know, so there you go. Um, and by the way, Anderson Cooper, he brings in about $50 million. Chris Hayes brings in about $31 million a year. So Tucker Carlson, you know, he was bringing in the bucks. And remember, however, Glenn, Rupert Murdoch dumped Glenn Beck. He dumped Bill O'Reilly. He dumped Roger Ailes. And he dumped Tucker Carlson. Why? Money. He believes he can make more money without Tucker Carlson than with him. It wasn't because of what he said. It wasn't because of calling a female executive the C word. It wasn't because he lied on air. It wasn't because he put these grotesque white supremacist, you know, conspiracy theories out for the world. They didn't care about any of that. They didn't care about that with anybody else, Glenn Beck or Bill O'Reilly or anyone. But they finally decided that they could make more money without him than with. Perhaps the trial judgment was part of that figuring out like we got more money to pay to Smartmatic and others and he's going to keep lying. So what do we do? But I think the one fact that I stumbled across that people aren't talking about is pretty relevant. Fox News is renegotiating its fees, its carriage fees with cable companies and over the top bundles like YouTube TV. That's the money that everyone who subscribes to any sort of bundle whether you get it over the air or you have Spectrum or whatever, you pay money for every single channel on that service, even if you don't watch it. This doesn't include like HBO Max or things you have to yeah, yeah. choose. Yeah. This is like ABC, CBS, PBS, yeah. Turner Classic Sports Movies, Network. Discovery, a regional sports network, and of course, Fox News. And people say, I don't want to pay for Fox News. And other people, I don't want to pay for CNN. But you do. Currently, Fox News gets $2.18 per subscriber. That's roughly amidst all of its deals. That's more than any other non-sports channel. ESPN gets the most. The regional sport networks get a tongue. They are now looking to raise that to $3. If they get that extra $0.82, cents, that would work out to about an extra $500 million a year in increased revenue. If they get half of that, that's an extra $250 million. Three years and you've paid for your Dominion lawsuit. Now, if they're well, doing and, that- Well, and keep in mind, they're mm -hmm. writing off the settlement, which means the it's taxpayers- a tax, It's a tax write-off, yeah. Right. The taxpayers are on the hook for $200 million of it. So well, not, that's not how it works. Taxpayers don't have to funnel in $200 the, million dollars they to don't Fox have, No, News. but they'll, they'll they, lose they, $200 million because of that. They won't. They'll have to pay- certain amount less in total taxes. Correct. How yeah. that would work out, we would have to know their, ta their things. But yes, they will right. save their money on their total tax bill. It's not that you and I have to fork out money to you know, help them out. But they're negotiating their carriage fee and they have decided in part that'll be easier to do if we can just shut people up who say, ah, we don't want to pay Tucker. He says, well, we got rid of them. So what are you going to argue about? Laura Ingraham? Do people care that much? Or Maria Bartiromo? Do they care that much? I doubt it. So Fox News, if they think they can get to that $3 mark easier without Tucker Carlson, that means a lot more money than any revenue, extra revenue he brings in. So that is their sole calculation. They can make more money without him than with him. And carriage fees are where Fox News makes a lot of their money. That's a huge amount of revenue along with all the shows and stuff that they have. So I think it was, as with everything else a pure business decision well as rupert murdoch himself said in his deposition in the dominion case uh you know it's not about red or blue it's about green yeah absolutely they certainly didn't care that he was you know spreading lies or white supremacy or anything like that oh he's become too toxic man green you know he was bringing in the money but they decided they can make more money without him do you think his career is dead tucker carlson well I wouldn't assume that it I wouldn't assume that it wasn't dead. 
But I don't know how many people Glenn Beck gets as a subscriber. If he gets twenty, if he gets fifty thousand people subscribing to his little online site for twenty bucks a month, well, that's that's a million dollars a month, right? That's twelve million dollars a year. That's a pretty good living, right? Yeah, pretty <laughs> so much. You don't need a lot of people to be willing to pay you ten dollars or twenty dollars a month to make a really good living. That's how Alex Jones makes so much money. I don't know what Glenn Beck's making, but it's probably pretty good. You know, you don't, if you can get just a fraction of the people who used to watch you on TV, Bill O'Reilly, he's got stuff. It doesn't seem to have a lot going on. So Tucker Carlson, can he pivot and do something else? Yeah. I think God help us all. The more likely thing, if, if I was going to be evil and advise him, I would say, yeah, why not be vice president with Trump? You know, you know, if you want to be run for office, be his VP candidate, whether if he wins, great. If he loses even better, because then you'll be the prime guy next time around. So if he wants that, this is the time to do it. Be his VP. Uh, Trump, uh, Trump has already reached out to him with, you know, c- condolences, even though Tucker said he hated him and despised him and couldn't wait. They don't care. It's all, it's all transactional with them. So, you know, if he wants to go into politics, this is the time to do it. Uh, but maybe he'll just go into some other media job. Certainly he won't go back to CNN or MSNBC, no. I don't think. But, uh, you know, he can do his own thing and make good money. You know who's not doing their own thing anymore? Anybody in our obituaries. No. Hey, hey, that's a copyright violation. Oh, so just be careful. Uh, and the reason you're doing that, though, is because Harry Belafonte died at the age of 96. And if you didn't know who he was, welcome to Earth. Uh, you let me be the first to welcome you here. He, of course, <laughs> uh, he had an iconic career. That's right. Massive success as a singer. He brought Calypso to Carnegie Hall and the world. Distinguished acting career and perhaps most memorably of all, a lifetime of political activism. His firsts are endless. He was the first person of color to win an Emmy. He also won the Grammys and a Tony and an honorary Oscar. So if, if you count that honorary Oscar, he's an EGOT. When he first appeared, when he appeared on a TV special with Petula Clark, she touched his arm at one point. Somebody else said she clutched it. It was a serious moment. Uh, But she touched his arm and it created a national furor. It was the first time a white woman and black man had any sort of contact on TV. That's the kind of world he became a superstar in and a sex symbol. Think how important and notable that is. He was set to appear on the Smother Brothers TV show, uh, but that was controversial. CBS refused to air it. His big break through album Calypso was the first album in the world to officially sell 1 million copies within a year. It stayed at number one for 31 weeks, still one of the longest streaks of all time. He guest hosted on The Tonight Show for Carson. And of course, he organized people for the March on Washington. Uh, He took part in the March to Selma. His support helped kept the civil rights movement going. The list goes on. He was a fine actor, a terrific singer, sort of swept away by rock and roll, but above all, a humanitarian. If you want somewhere to start, try his Carnegie Hall album. uh, It was just a great album. It's just, uh, it's probably the best place to start. Well, here's another humanitarian. I mean, in, in so much as he liked to have humans fight with one another because as a polar opposite to Harry Belafonte, there is the career of talk show host Jerry, Jerry Springer. Jerry, Jerry. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, whatever talent or charisma Springer had as a politician and TV personality, he squandered it for peddling trash and cashing in. A one-time mayor of Cincinnati. That's right. He was the mayor of Cincinnati. Springer believed his liberal political career uh, he, when he was over when he was caught soliciting prostitutes or, 
at least when he was caught paying by check. So, uh, in fact, uh, one of his checks bounced and was posted on the wall uh, on the wall of the massage parlor, which is how police found it. Okay, that's how they were like, <laughs> if he just paid his check, paid his bill, he wouldn't have been caught. Uh, st- still, by the way, he became mayor after that. But just a, a you know assumed national office was out of the question. How Little quaint! Did he realize. How quaint! <laughs> he stumbled into TV, taking a local Cincinnati news show from last to first, and becoming the most popular anchor in town. And then uh, came the Jerry Springer show, a cesspool of real people and reported reportedly actors acting out on camera for the delight of people at home. It was launched in 1991 to uh, to my chagrin, I will say. His first three seasons were devoted to liberal causes like gun and homelessness he turned tabloid to say the least glorifying uh episodes like stripper wars trotting out transgender people as freaks along with brawls and sexual shenanigans springer made his entrance for a while sliding down a stripper pole that's right (laughs) ratings surged uh and soon he was beating oprah okay so tv guy wants to name the jerry springer show the worst tv series of all time Okay. And by the way, that competition is fierce. So uh, it lasted 27 years and then moved on to America's uh, Got Talent and then to Judge Jerry. I mean, I don't, you know, I have no ill will for the guy, but good grief. He told law school graduates to consider this. I am not superior to the people on my show and you are not superior to the people you will represent. That's a nice sentiment, except that if you watch the show, you never got the sense that he felt he was you know, on a par with them. It was always judging them and mocking them and putting them up for ridicule. There was a great musical called Jerry Springer, the opera, and that had more empathy for the focus of the show than Jerry Springer ever did. Uh, I'm shocked at how many people are like, oh, what's your bill? You know, I was like, somebody posted, all right. I'm like, really, Jerry Springer? And they're like, what's wrong? I'm like, he's not really a guy to celebrate. <laughs> you know, no. he had all the talent in the world. He knew better. And he used money to, to mock and ridicule working class, poor people, less educated people, and people who were minorities, both sexual and racial. They were made laughing stocks. And uh, it was a very poisonous show. And it was a, it was a shame. But here, I love this, though. This is sort of a footnote. Ginny Newhart, the wife of the legendary comic and actor Bob Newhart, she died at 82. She was never an artist or an actor, uh, but they recently celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary. I love this. They were set up by Buddy Hackett. (laughs) Buddy Hackett set them up on a blind date. He's like, ah, you should meet this guy. He's a really good comic. I think you should marry. And they, they, they got married. But she deserves a place in TV history. Bob Newhart was about to end his... Second big sitcom, Newhart, the one set in Vermont. And she was at a party chatting with Suzanne Plachette, of course, who played his wife from his earlier hit show, The Bob Newhart Show. And she had an idea, and the rest is history. Now, if you don't know the last episode of Newhart, which is the greatest final episode of a TV show of all time, uh, well, The Bob Newhart Show is on Amazon Prime or Hulu. Watch all six seasons. It's one of the best sitcoms of all time. Then go to Newhart. That's on Amazon Prime. It's eight seasons. Uh, So watch all 14 seasons of those two shows so you can fully appreciate the joke. Okay. Well, what about... uh I mean, I guess there's, we have a number of people. All right, we have. Todd Hames died. He was a very revolutionary person at the roundabout. Did a lot of stuff 
that has been adapted by nonprofits all over the country, helping to promote theater and theatrical companies and subscription services. He really was a trailblazer, as was Rita Lakin or Lakin. She was a pioneering TV showrunner. She was a showrunner when they didn't even have a word for showrunners, a woman in Hollywood. She was widowed and desperate for work. She got a job at Universal as a secretary. Luckily, one of her bosses was future head Ned Tannen. Good choice. She bought a book on screenwriting, wrote a script, got it, and started working on Dr. Kildare, Daniel Boone. She moved back to New York and worked on the daytime soap, The Doctors, helping along with others, turned that into a number one hit. And she had a great career with producer Aaron Spelling. I love this. She wrote for The Mod Squad and other stuff. And she was in his office and he's on the, on the, on the phone with the network and they need a pitch and he doesn't have a pitch. And she's like, uh, uh, give him The Mod Squad. He's like, we're going to give you The Mod Squad, but there'll be cops, rookies turning into cops. He said, but there'll be rookies turning into cops. And she's and everything she said, he repeated. And they said, well, take it. And he said, hung up the phone and he said, I'm going to make you rich. <laughs> and so she, she became the head of the rookies and she actually became a de facto showrunner before that was even a thing. She said before that, they wanted to keep the writers as far away from a show as possible. But then having a writer on the show, they realized that would help. She did all sorts of cool stuff like a TV movie with Ida Lupino and Medical Center. She wrote a two-part season opener for the Medical Center, which starred the closeted actor Robert Reed of Brady Bunch fame playing a doctor who came out as transgender and wanted gender reassignment surgery. That was 50 years ago. That's kind of amazing. And finally, Barry Humphreys, speaking of, uh, of sexual minorities, Barry Humphreys was a heterosexual man who made his career playing Dame Edna. He died at the age of 89. I would say, possums, I have some sad news. Dame Edna is dead. Yes, Barry Humphreys, the Australian who created the character of Edna, a housewife who morphed over the years into a media darling, Dame Edna, died at 89. She was in movies, TV shows. She guested as Dame Edna on all sorts of shows. In fact, Dame Edna had an acting career. Barry Humphreys played a recurring role on Ally McBeal, but it was Dame Edna who was credited for playing this female character. So kind of a crazy fun thing. He started early on with Beyond the Fringe and the Pythons, worked with Dudley Moore and Terry Jones. He was in the Australian debut of Waiting for Godot. He was in the original West End cast of Oliver. Then he donned a frock and the rest is history. But of course, he never did it in Florida because that wouldn't have been safe. That is probably true. Yep, that's it. In fact, that's it for our our program this week. Uh, And we hope that you'll join us next week. And if you subscribe to our show in any one of the podcast aggregators out there like iTunes or the Microsoft Marketplace or Stitcher or Spotify or Google Podcasts, you know what? You won't miss a show. So please do subscribe to our program in any one of those podcast aggregators. You can find that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as those ways to contact us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That is 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter, at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle, and we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like our page. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's goodbye, possums. That's a Dame Edna reference. It right? is. It is. I was going to do Field of Dreams, but that just takes you to, I thought it would take you to the actual baseball field in Iowa, but it just takes you to like, buy Field of Dreams on streaming. 
Oh, okay. Well, you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com? Some of my work can be found on Celluloid Junkie. Until next week, play nice. (laughs) 